Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for your teachings to us, leaving behind for us uh, your instructions and your encouragements, your warnings. We ask, God, that uh, you would fill us with your Holy Spirit, that you would minister to us wherever we're at and whatever we need to hear, that it's not necessarily what's coming out of my mouth. Lord, how you minister to us in our hearts. And Lord, help us to be receptive towards that. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, We're in verses 14 through 18. And the section of scripture we're looking at uh, this evening is in between uh, two stories of rich men. And the first story can be found in verse 1. And the second story of a rich man, if you look ahead, is starting in verse 19. And we're going to take a look at that story next week. And so for this evening, we're going to focus on the Pharisees' reaction to Jesus' teaching on service to God and money. And we're also going to take a look at uh, their ridicule of Jesus. Now, when looking back to verse 1, you will notice that this teaching is intended for Jesus' disciples. Reading it, it says, He also said to the disciples. But lurking around, kind of listening to what Jesus is teaching his disciples were the Pharisees. And they were there and they heard what Jesus was teaching. And so they continued their dislike of Jesus' teachings, except they're a little bit more outspoken with their discontent at this point. If you look back to chapter 15, verse 2, the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled. If you were here back then to talk about that teaching, it was a murmur. And so, you know, when people talk smack about you and it's kind of like under their breath and it's kind of like behind your back and it's just kind of like... It's like that sort of grumbling. That's that's how it was. And you notice how things have kind of changed when we reach chapter 16, verse 14, because now it reads this, they ridiculed him, meaning that they derided him, they they, uh, turned their noses toward him, they, they sneered at him, they scoffed at him. Back in chapter 15, they weren't so in your face. And so things have just kind of changed a little bit, right? Things back then was just kind of under their breath, grumbling, murmuring. But now, chapter 16, they've taken this confrontational posture. They're not just kind of murmuring anymore. So take notice of that. And something in them was unresolved. Something in them produced this greater hostility. And I think one of the unresolved things for the Pharisees was that Jesus continued to receive sinners and to dine with them, to eat with them, just as recorded back in chapter 15, verse 2. And so this really, really bothered them. It didn't fit their idea of of a good rabbi, a good prophet, or a good teacher. A good rabbi who knew the Scriptures this well would surely be hanging out with them and would be with them and pointing out how everyone else doesn't just get it and doesn't measure up. And this really got under their skin that, that not only did Jesus hang out with sinners, but he was telling the Pharisees how out of order they were. And that they didn't have things right. And so it would be bad enough if Jesus just kind of associated with sinners, but it was more than that. He, he challenged the religious establishment. In Luke chapter 5, Luke recorded for us an event starting in verse 27. After this, he went out and saw a tax collector named Levi sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And leaving everything, he rose and followed him. And Levi made him a great feast in his house. And there was a large company of tax collectors and others reclining at table with them. And the Pharisees and their scribes grumbled at his disciples saying, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now it's 
10 chapters later, it's the same fight. It's the same fight that's still going on, right? Chapter 15, starting in verse 1. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Same fight that they're fighting over 10 chapters later. Now, if you're newer to hearing the Bible, you may be wondering why tax collectors are lumped in with sinners. Well, it's almost tax season, so you should understand this. But it's because tax collectors were swindlers. So they collected taxes for the Roman Empire so that the way that they were portrayed or perceived by their own people were, were that they were traitors. Traitors to their own people. They collect taxes for the very government that was oppressing them. And on top of that, the tax collectors took some, some for themselves. So after they paid off the Roman government, whatever they wanted to get paid, whatever they collect that collected that was more than that, they would keep for themselves. So they cheated those people. They cheated everyone they were collecting taxes from, making them pay more than even the Roman Empire required them to pay, so that they would just kind of stuff their pockets with that. So these guys were really, really hated. And so here Jesus is. He's hanging out with the very people who cheated everyone else out of their hard-earned money to pay this oppressive government that was just getting more powerful because of their taxation, and they were forcefully ruling them. And so that money is going back to them to make them even stronger, to oppress them even more. So this was really offensive to the Pharisees. They couldn't understand, how can you be with those guys? You're a teacher of the Scripture and you're, you're hanging out with them and you're eating with, with people who are so openly sinful. They are openly lying to us because we know that we're paying more. They're openly stealing from us and you're just hanging out with them and they're openly sinful and you're just going on there and just hanging out like you're good friends. They couldn't understand why Jesus really came. They couldn't understand why God sent His Son to us. Continuing on in Luke chapter 5, verses 31 and 32, And Jesus answered them, Those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. See, Jesus didn't come to us religious types to pat us on the back and say, you know, good job going to church, good job reading your Bible, good job doing your quiet time, good job being religious. He came to call sinners to repentance. Have we as followers of Jesus Christ lost that calling? Are we so self-absorbed with our religiosity that we have forgotten to share the gospel and call sinners to repentance? So this hanging out and, and eating with tax collectors and sinners, this has been festering with the Pharisees and scribes for a really long time. Over ten chapters of, of simmering until reaching this boiling point of confrontational ridicule. And what sent the Pharisees over the edge? What subject matter was, was the straw to break the camel's back for the Pharisees? Looking back at chapter 16, money. It's money. Verses 13 and 14 of Luke chapter 16. So no servant can serve two masters, for he will either hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. The Pharisees, who were lovers of money, heard all these things and they ridiculed him. Money is a really sensitive subject, isn't it? 
I mean, you can talk about a lot of things and you can get away with a lot of things from the pulpit. But when you talk about money, it kind of changes some things. People don't want you to talk or preach or teach about money. And then they are, start getting all uncomfortable and saying, oh, you're just a church, you're just wanting our money and just taking money, money, money. This is an extremely personal subject matter. And some people feel that it's no one else's business to talk about this stuff. But the thing about money is, is what it reveals. Money is an extremely accurate measure of where one's heart is. It is an extremely accurate measure of one's character. So if we were to pull your banking statements and your checking accounts and your credit card statements and, and where you spend your cash, all of those things are good gauges of where your heart is. How much you give, where you give, what you spend your money on, where you spend your money. All of those decent questions to test where your heart is. And the same can be said about time. Where you spend your time, how you use your time. So Jesus hits this really sensitive nerve when he brought up money with the Pharisees. And these guys start ridiculing Jesus. So this this really got them heated. And I think this is a potentially good thing. Because people rarely change when they're in states of apathy. Isn't that true? When you say, ah, this is cool. I'm just going to kick back. It's not, not a big deal. That does not cause you to change. It's when people are heated that things start getting awakened around them and then they start getting more sensitive to things and they, they can start hearing and changing. When they are brought to a point to make a choice about what they're going to do with the things that they're confronted with. That's why being a lukewarm Christian is so appalling to God. In Revelation chapter 3, verses 15 and 16, John wrote this, I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. The the apathetic Christian is so repulsive to God. We need to choose whom or what we will serve. In Joshua chapter 24, verse 15, Joshua told the people to make a choice. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in those land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So it's a good thing that these guys got heated at Jesus because this woke them up. This just shook them, shook them awake. Decisions can now be made and there are decisions that are opposed to one another that you have to think through and you have to make your choices like serving God and money. You can't do both. You have to choose. Like being a disciple of Jesus or, or not being a disciple of Jesus. Choose this day whom you will serve. The Pharisees were confronted with serving God or serving money and this kind of shook them awake and, and it challenged them. They had to think about how they were using their money and if that was reflective of being a disciple of God. But what did they do? They ridiculed Him. They ridiculed Jesus they, they didn't just humbly accept and take in Jesus' teachings because they couldn't believe that Jesus could call them out on anything. Why is that? Because look at his followers. You're telling me how to live my life? But look at the bunch of losers that are following you. Are you kidding me? Where's your credibility? You got a bunch of losers following you, and here we are. We know our word, and we're we're, we're upstanding citizens, and we're 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 good people. We give, and we're doing all this stuff. We're doing all this religious stuff. We're pious people. 
But they were totally missing the point. The Pharisees were were trying to point out that Jesus' followers were a bunch of unrighteous, unholy sinners. And Jesus was saying, exactly. Exactly. That's who I came here for. You guys are totally missing the point as to why God sent me. And you guys aren't doing what the law and the prophets have been instructing you. Verses 15 and 16. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. For what is exalted among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. See, the Pharisees were really good at performing the externals of the law. At doing what legalistically looked good on the outside, but they totally disregarded the heart of the law. What was in their own hearts, they totally disregarded that. They failed to honor the law and the prophets by their indifference towards the poor. They were strict about keeping certain external laws. Ask them about the Sabbath and any law pertaining to the Sabbath, they would know. And they would actually live that out. But they ignored what the law called for internally. Things like compassion. They totally lacked that. The Pharisees and lawyers, they they knew the answers to pass the test regarding the law, but they didn't always know how to apply that knowledge. For example, you can take an ethics course and you can get the highest score on that exam. You can get an A+. You can miss nothing. But that doesn't mean that you're the most ethical person in that class. Because you could have cheated to get that grade. So that doesn't mean that you're the most ethical person because you can get the highest score. You are just a good test taker. But you are not necessarily a very good practitioner of what you're learning and the test that you're taking. Jesus was plainly telling those Pharisees that they weren't in line with the law and the prophets because they lacked compassion and God is compassionate. And you take a look at how God is compassionate towards those who are poor, and you can take a look at the Old Testament, take a look at the Old Testament law. Starting in Leviticus, we're just going to take a look at two verses in Leviticus. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10, and chapter 23, verse 22. Leviticus chapter 19, verse 10 reads this, And you shall not strip your vineyard bare, neither shall you gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. And when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap your field right up to its edge, nor shall you gather the gleaning after your harvest. You shall leave them for the poor and for the sojourner. I am the Lord your God. The Lord has compassion on the poor and for the sojourner. If you're not familiar with the term sojourner, the foreigner, the refugee, the alien... That's where God's heart is, is for those people who are lacking so much. Do you see why our church desires to pour our ministry efforts, our ministry resources into serving the poor, into serving the refugees of our community? See, the Lord has called us to plant a church in Oakland where many of the poor reside, where many refugees get resettled. I don't know if you know this, Oakland is one of four cities in Northern California to be kind of resettlement cities where where refugees from around the world they they are put here in Oakland so where's our compassion towards them 
They're coming here. We're not in some other city where, where you, it'd be hard-pressed to find them. They're coming to our city. So where is our compassion towards them? The poor are here. Where is our compassion towards them? In serving the poor, one of the ways that we serve the poor is through our cross streets ministry, and they feed the hungry every Sunday morning. There's breakfast for them every Sunday morning, and every other Friday night, uh, a group of them goes out to wherever they live, you know, in the parks or in the on-ramps or off-ramps or um, all these different places that they're settling in, in Oakland. And the person that heads up that ministry, his name is Brian Fuentes. And so he, he talked about that ministry last week, I think. And so, so that's one aspect of how our church serves the poor. With the refugee community, we have some great people serving in our refugee ministry. These are just going to be names to you, but hopefully you're going to meet them sometime. But Jeff and April and Doug and Laurel, every Friday afternoon in the chapel, they are teaching ESL classes to those in, in the community who used to have Alameda County Adult Education Services, but they cut all those services. Alameda County cut all adult ed. So there is no ESL in Alameda County that is free anymore. They have to go to classes like this. And so these guys got together and said, hey, let's put on a class for these guys, and that's what they did. And so they've been teaching them, they get to know them, they help them to find jobs, they help them to learn about our culture, where to go for services, they hang out with them and eat with them, go to their homes, and they invite them over to theirs, and they play soccer, they do all these different things with them, helping them to acclimate to our community. And Jeff has started a Bible study that is solely focused on uh, what the Bible says about the sojourner. So they talk about verses like in Leviticus. And how are we providing, how are we the modern vineyard? How are we the modern farm? And along with the poor, Oakland has a serious problem with sex trafficking of kids. Kids. I'm not talking about adults. I'm talking about minors. If you want to get involved with that, you can talk to a gal named Mimi Chan who leads that effort for us. And, and you probably know her because she was campaigning and canvassing our, our church to, for you to sign the CASE Act. And the CASE Act is, is something that we've been behind for a long time, since the beginning of it, for harsher penalties for sex traffickers. And so we're big supporters of that. We're big supporters of New Day for Children. New Day for Children is this rescue facility for kids who were formerly sex trafficked, and so they bring them to uh, this home, this home that we have for them. And we share with them about Jesus, we, we rehabilitate them, we get, put them through counseling and, and animal therapy and art therapy, and they go through all the counseling, and, and we get them caught up in their education. There are girls there that have started at eight years old. They were sex trafficked at eight years old. Eight. My oldest daughter is six. I can't imagine two years later how much bigger she's going to be. She's a baby. And so we help finance them. We, we pray for them. We, we volunteer there. And currently there are 13 in that home. It's one of the few homes in all the United States that takes in domestic kids. The United States is really good about kids that are trafficked internationally that come in. And there's a lot, a lot more resources for them. But in terms of domestic kids, there's not much. Because there's so much bureaucracy here. Figuring out who's the guardian and who's the parent and all this kind of stuff. It takes a lot of resource to get these kids into these types of programs. So that's something that we get behind. 
Come the summertime, we're going to be um, hosting a march called Love Never Fails. And this march is going to start here and we're just going to go down International Boulevard. If you want to know how bad the sex trafficking is, you just go on a, when people are paid. When people are paid, just go down International Boulevard and everywhere you see a check cashing center, you are going to see a bunch of sex trafficked people. It's just right here. It's in our backyard. And so there are numerous organizations we partner with and support in regards to the sex trafficking of kids. So to the extent of compassion to the poor in our community, you can get in touch with someone like Brian. For, for compassion to refugees, you can get in touch with somebody like Doug or Jeff. And for the extension of compassion to sex trafficked kids, you can get in touch with someone like Mimi. Let's not just know the Bible in our heads. Every Sunday we're here, we're opening up the Bible and we're learning about it. But let's not just do it so that we can pass a Bible test. Let the Bible penetrate your hearts and may we show compassion to those in need of the love of God, in need of our love. It is impossible for us to claim to be followers of Jesus while being indifferent towards those who are in need of our compassion. Or are we going to be like the Pharisees? who were confronted by Jesus to be lovers of money, who knew the Bible answers to pass a test, and did what looked religiously good on the outside, but their hearts were rotten and they lacked compassion. They ridiculed and they scoffed at Jesus when they needed to repent. Jesus called them out on these things. Back in verse 9, Jesus said, And I tell you, make friends for yourselves by means of unrighteous wealth, so that when it fails, they may receive you into eternal dwellings. See, we are used to stuff to make friends. Unlike the rich man who we're going to talk about next week with Lazarus, he just passed him by at the gate. He's rich, we know this because it says that he was wearing purple and that he was feasting and all this kind of stuff. And so Jesus was pointing out to the Pharisees that, you know, your attention is on money. And he's going to tell this story next week about the rich man and Lazarus and point this out even further. But he's pointing out to them, your attention is on money instead of people. Right? Our, our, our money can be used to make friends, but how many of us have this idea to use people to make money instead? Right? That, that's much like the world in our day, isn't it? That we use people for, for money instead of money for people. See, people using others to make money for this temporary gain instead of people using their money to make friends to bring them into eternal dwellings. Rather than being concerned with using their money and exercising compassion, they were preoccupied with, with status and popularity and, and money. They were lovers of money. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 10, Paul wrote this to, to his disciple Timothy. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. The Pharisees used their money not to gain friends, but to gain notoriety, popularity for themselves. When they gave money, they made sure everyone knew about it. 
They didn't do it quietly like many of you do, whether it's through like PayPal or a credit card or email or just quietly in the back. These guys, they, they brought their money bags and they made a total spectacle out of it. They made sure that they had some heavy coins and they poured it in there. Clank, 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 clank. It was like they were in Vegas. And they went clank, 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 clank. And, and they wanted people to know how much they were giving and how much, how many, hey, check me out. Look at me. I'm a very generous person and I give. And people who want their, they're like the people of our day who want their name plastered on stuff. You know, if I give to this, um, I'd like my name on the building, or I'd like my name on that bridge, or I'd like my name on this structure, or whatever, donated by blah, blah, blah. Or if you donate to this, we're going to put you on our wall as a, as a platinum donor, or as a silver gold donor, or whatever like that. And, and they've, they've used it to this sort of thing. Giving is an awesome thing. Giving is a good thing. But if you give in that way for the approval of people, that's your reward. That's it. That name on that building, that name on that plaque, that name, that, that's it. Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 4 reads this Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Pharisees are alive and well today in our society. People who claim to know God, but who aren't seekers of God's own heart. People who live for temporary things and the approval of others, rather than the eternal things and living in the acceptance of God through Jesus Christ. And you know what? I'm at fault for this at times. I am not, you know, guiltless of this. And so are you if you're completely honest. How many of us read and understand the teachings of the Bible, yet we still rebel? How many of us are are religious? Which I think, to some extent, is all of us. Otherwise, we wouldn't be in church. And we're religious, but we come up with our own ideas of what a relationship with Jesus is like when the Bible plainly lays it out for us what a relationship with Jesus really looks like. And yes, all of our relationships are personal and they are distinct and they look different, but it doesn't change that we are sinners and that we need a Savior. But there are people who want to create these kind of sub-religions and branch off of Christianity, and that's not how God works. So you can't take what you want from Jesus and just kind of leave the rest and you're just kind of going like you're to a buffet and like, oh yeah, I, don't, I want that, but I don't want that. And you, you can't do that. It's all or nothing. It's hot or cold. He does not want lukewarm. That is repulsive to him. Have you asked Jesus to save you? Have you repented of your sins? Have you got yourself involved in the family of the local church? And I'm not just saying that you're doing it in your head and you show up on church on Sunday. I'm saying doing something more formal, like becoming a congregant. Making that a formal kind of transaction, saying, I'm dedicated here, I am here. Or directly serving in the church body. Have you been baptized? What are the indicators that you are indeed a follower of Jesus and not just outwardly religious playing the religious game? Has your life been transformed or are you just playing religion? See, the aim of regeneration is not to multiply religious people 
We want to see people's lives transform because they have a relationship with Jesus where people are moved from darkness into light. This is not a religious club. We want each person here to have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. How do we distinguish between belonging to a religious club and having a personal relationship with Jesus? Well, let's look back to verse 17. But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. One dot. Just imagine the letter I, right? That dot. We need to look at the law. And so some of you might be thinking, wait a minute, what, the law? We've got to look at the law? Isn't a relationship with Jesus all about grace? And if we focus on the law, aren't we just being religious? Let me try to explain. First of all, we can't ignore the law. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. We cannot disregard the law. What we find in the Old Testament is of utmost importance for us to understand how God made Himself savingly known in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus incarnate, God in the flesh, arriving on earth is the turning point of history. And you can't fully understand this moment of history without the law and the prophets, which all point to Jesus Christ. If you have problems understanding the Old Testament, I understand. Read them with Jesus in mind, and I think that's going to help you. If you focus on Jesus while you're reading the Old Testament, I think that will be helpful to you. Now, something that the church, including myself, something that we do at times is that we're not very good at sharing the gospel. We're not good at sharing them in a good way or an understandable way. Let me give you an example. We say things like, Jesus died on the cross because He loves you, so accept Him. Now, think about that. Think about someone who has no background about Jesus or what that means. Think about some of the things we say to people who have little background about Jesus. Because if you understand that and that doesn't kind of bother you at all, you've been Christianized. You already have all the background to hear that and say like, oh yeah, that makes sense. Put the hat on of someone that has never heard the gospel before, does not know anything about Jesus. Put that perspective in your mind. Jesus died on the cross because He loves me? And because He loves me, because He died for me, and so now my response is to give my life for Him? How does that make any sense? How does that make sense? See, there's a lot missing in that story, isn't there? It's like Katie coming to me. Katie's my wife. And she comes to me and she says, I love you with all of my being, and I'm going to die so that I can show you my love. I don't know her. She just came and she started telling me this. And I'm thinking, you know, yeah, I can understand that. I mean, I'm a pretty lovable guy and I can understand why you'd want to do that for me. Look at me. No, I, w- I wouldn't be thinking that. I'd be thinking, you're psycho. I mean, get, get away from You're a freak. Get away from me. What do you mean you want to die for me? You don't even know me. You love me and you want to die for me? You're You're crazy. But it would be a little bit different if she came and she told me something different. If she came and she told me, I love you with all of my being and I need to tell you something, you're going to die. 
you're going to die. And you have a need that is so large that you can't possibly save yourself. You can't take care of this thing on your own. And the need that needs to be filled for you is your life. You're going to die. And I'm going to show you my love for you, even though you don't know me. But just accept this in faith, that I'm going to take your place. That if I die, you don't have to. And I'm going to die for you. Because my life, my life is acceptable in your place, so, so I'm going to give mine for yours. See, that's different. That's different, right? That, that explains to me that, yeah, I do have a need, and she does love me. And it's different. So it is with the law. If we don't tell people of the law of God, they will not understand their need for a Savior. They're just going to think you're cuckoo when you share these things about Jesus. The law shows people that they are sinners. That there is a need for a Savior. Jesus, our Savior, dying on the cross, doesn't make sense to people who don't know that they need a Savior. It's just crazy talk. Jesus died on the cross because He loves me. Why in the world would he do that? Get down. That's crazy. I mean, there's another way to show that you love me. You don't have to do that. That's crazy. Why die? See, it doesn't make sense to them. This is part of the law that is so important that we leave out. Things like Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. They need to know that. Otherwise, it's like, this does not make any sense. What is sin? It's in the law. Exodus chapter 20. The Ten Commandments, right? You shall have no other gods before me. Not making any images or likenesses uh, in terms of the idolatry. Not taking the Lord's name in vain. Honoring your father and mother. uh, Remembering the Sabbath. uh, Not murdering. Not committing adultery. Not stealing. Not lying. Not coveting. All those types of things. What the law does is that it exposes our sin, but sometimes we think that the law is graded on this bell curve. That, you know, if, well, if I just miss one, that's not a big thing. It's still an A. Nine out of ten. Or if I just miss two, I'm still, or if I miss three, it's still the passing grade. It's still... So many of us are college educated. So many of us are upward mobile. And we're such free thinkers that we might think that we're just good enough. You know, hey, I, I'm doing seven out of ten. I'm good. Or, or you start comparing to people. You know, compared to Pastor Albert, I'm actually pretty good. Which is probably true. But see, I'm not the standard. The standard is Jesus. The standard is perfection. This is not a bell curve. If you miss one, you're guilty. Getting an A, you're still guilty. You are graded against holiness. You are graded against perfection. There isn't one of us here who isn't even guilty of the first commandment. Right? Exodus chapter 20, verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. We're all guilty of that. How many of us have put our education before God, our career, our money, family, spouse, children, whatever it may be, we've put all these different things before God. We've all done it, let alone the other nine. We, we didn't even get past one, if we're honest. And it's not until we realize that we've broken the law of God that we can start looking at how our law-breaking death sentence can be satisfied. 
that religion is not a game. It's impossible for us to have a relationship with the Holy God by playing religion or just kind of living this religious cultural life. And it's not until people recognize that they've broken the law and their sentence is death because the wages of sin is death do they start looking for a way to change that sentence. That way is Jesus. And their death sentence, because they've broken the law, was satisfied by Jesus' death on the cross. That His blood shed was for the remission of sins. His death on the cross took the punishment that was supposed to be yours. That was supposed to be mine. That sentence was ours and He took it. He didn't have to. It was His grace that took my death sentence. You and I have sinned against the law of God. That's what the law exposes in each of us. That we're sinners. There's no getting around that. The only way of salvation is through Jesus Christ. And the only acceptable sacrifice is Him. Because He is perfect. Jesus came to fulfill the law. He he points us back to the law. And the Holy Spirit is with us, continuing to work with us and showing us how the law plays out within us. Not as a religious show, but dynamically living in us. And so Jesus points out an example of this in verse 18. Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. Why is there so much divorce amongst Christians? Why is there so much idolatry amongst Christians? Why is there so much covetousness amongst Christians? I think part of it is because there is an absence of the law of God. How many Christians are out there thinking that it's all about Jesus? Jesus, 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 and no more law. There's no law. That is false. Because if there is no law, then you don't need Jesus. So there is still a law, otherwise you wouldn't need Jesus. There is a law. Jesus didn't come to abolish the law. He came to fulfill it. And I think there are too many Christians who have compromised on Jesus and God's law. The the law still exists. It is not abolished by the arrival of Jesus over 2,000 years ago. Jesus said in verse 17, But it is easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one dot of the law to become void. One dot of it. Whoever tells you that there is no law or that the Old Testament is irrelevant, that is a false teacher. That is a false teacher. In fact, Jesus referred back to the law in verse 18. He's referring back to the sixth commandment. Exodus chapter 20, verse 14. You shall not commit adultery. And he brings in divorce as the subject matter in verse 18 of Luke chapter 16. Not because of just like randomness. He has a purpose for this. Jesus brought this in for a reason. And it was because these guys totally abused God's law and they were guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. And so these guys were were just there making marriage a joke. And they made it a, a sexist issue, a chauvinistic issue, by providing all sorts of reasons of why a man could issue divorce while the woman was just kind of held hostage to a man's whims. For example, in the Mishnah, According to Hillel rule, a man may divorce his wife for spoiling his dinner by putting too much salt in his food or burning his dinner. I'm not making any of this up. You can look it up. It's still there. 
Rabbi Akiva, who, who comes later on, he took it even further than Hillel rule, and he ruled that a person is allowed to divorce his wife merely because he found another woman more pleasing to him. Jesus doesn't play that. Jesus is not about that. Jesus leveled the playing field for women. And for anyone who thinks that Christianity, oh, it's a bunch of sexist pigs over there and chauvinistic people, that religion is so outdated, so like patriarchal, I know there are people within Christianity who are, but Jesus is not. Jesus is not. Jesus made men and women both accountable for adultery, not just women like these guys. Like the Pharisees who attempted to do this in Jesus' day. See, Jesus upheld marriage as a covenant relationship between a man and a woman, not a relationship to be severed so easily like many in our society do. You know, oh, you, you, you oversalted my stuff. We're getting a divorce. You burnt my dinner. We're getting a divorce. Oh, she looks cuter than you do. We're getting a divorce. And all this kind of stuff. Now, in cases of divorce, this isn't Jesus only teaching about it, even though it's one of them. Matthew 19 addresses causes of divorce due to sexual immorality. 1 Corinthians chapter 7 addresses causes of divorce with an unbelieving spouse who leaves the marriage. And now we don't have time to go into those passages this evening, but Lord willing, we'll get to those in the future. But just in our text right here in front of us, Jesus was confronting these Pharisees on how they viewed Him breaking the law of God by hanging out with tax collectors and sinners. But Jesus kind of flips it on them and shows them a mirror and shows them the whole point of God's law was to show people that they are sinners and you guys are. You are breaking the sixth commandment and I'm here to save you guys. I'm here to save them. That's why I'm hanging out with them. And the real violators of the law are you. You are breaking the law, not just externally, but also with your heart. An example of that is how you're treating the covenant of marriage with these petty reasons for divorce. Over-salting food, burning your dinner because you see someone else that you like more? No. You are sinning. God's plan for marriage was for that to be a lifelong, monogamous union celebrated between a man and a woman. Not divorce for these petty reasons like oversalting food and burning food and because you see somebody else that you like more. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 19, verse 8, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. Lastly, let's take a closer look at verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John. Since then, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. A couple phrases there that I can see may be kind of confusing. The first one, the law and the prophets were until John. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that the law and the prophets ended with John the Baptist, Jesus' cousin. It means that there was a transition A transition that happened when John preached in Luke chapter 3 as John was the last of the Old Testament prophets declaring the good news of the kingdom of God. And so John was the forerunner to Jesus and Jesus is the one prophesied about in Isaiah when he read about himself in Luke chapter 4, verses 18 and 19. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. 
Now you go back to Luke chapter 16, that latter part. It says, since then the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. Another possibly confusing phrase is that everyone forces his way into it. What do you mean by that? Now keep in mind that the Pharisees and people like the Pharisees hate the word everyone. They don't like that word. They like us. They like that word. Because they didn't like the idea that those Gentiles, them, are welcome into the kingdom like us. And just like Christians of today who have certain stances of Christianity, and I'm not saying in terms of compromising what Jesus stands for, but these little minor issues, these these issues that are more open-handed within the Christian world, and they have these kind of arrogance to them that our Christian way of thinking and believing and theological perspective is the right way and everyone else is wrong. And I'm talking about those more minor groups. I'm not talking about Christianity in general. But there are these smaller groups that that aren't as welcoming, and they're and they're saying... They don't believe the same thing as us, so everyone forces their way in? Everyone? Everyone forces his way into it, is what he says. Now, does this phrase remind you of something else Jesus said earlier in Luke chapter 16? Back in Luke chapter 13, verse 24, Jesus said, Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. So, so you see these words. Force. Strive. See, it takes effort. It takes effort. You're not just going to end up in the kingdom of God without any work. Oh, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I'm just going to sit down on my couch and watch television until I die or until you come back. We're good. No! You are not being an obedient follower of Jesus. You are not being a disciple of His. That is just lip service. It takes effort. You don't get in being lukewarm. You get spit out. It's either hot or cold. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And He said to all. You're getting this? Everyone forces His way into it. And He said to all. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Following Jesus requires a denial of self. It requires a death to self. So different from what the world teaches. The world preaches to us that we can have anything we want, when we want it, how we want it, who you want it with, where you want it, and it's all up to us. Believe whatever you want. Whatever is good for you is good for you. Whatever is good for me is good for me. And you know what? That takes no work at all. That is very lazy. Think about that. You don't have to think. You do what you want. I do what I want. That's it. That's so lazy. What effort does that take? Everything worth anything takes effort. Think about this. Whether you're working out in athletics, in education, a job, a career, whatever it is that is worth something, it takes effort. There is nothing that is worth something that you can just sit back and do nothing about. Name one. It all takes effort. And the more serious that calling is, the more that it is worth, the more serious the effort has to be. Isn't that right? That's just how the world works. It's the same thing with the spiritual world. 
Things take effort. We are to strive. We are to force our way in. We are to deny ourselves, take up our cross daily and follow Him. It takes effort. It takes work. Your relationship with Jesus is with you, not anyone else around you. You have to put it in the work. You have to put in the effort. Someone else cannot do it for you. This is not some religious club where you're just on for the ride and I'm, I'm going to ride your coattails all the way to heaven. It does not work like that. Do you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ? Have you forced your way into the kingdom? Have you strived to enter through the narrow door? Have you denied yourself, taken up your cross daily to follow Him? This is not a call to play religion. This is not just for us to kind of have religion as part of our cultural background and upbringing so that we can benefit others. Oh, I need a little religion in my life because, you know, I want to be a better dad or I want to be a better husband or I want to be a better friend or whatever. This is not a cultural thing. This is a call to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Will you humbly accept His invitation as your sin is pointed out to you and your need of a Savior is obvious? Look at Exodus 20. It is obvious. Or are you going to be like the Pharisees and you're going to ridicule Him? You're going to scoff at Him. You're going to turn your nose up to Him and say, whatever. Whatever. We can't just play religion. We can't just think that, oh, it's just, you know, it's cute. It's good morals. It's good ethics. This is a relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, thank You for Your warning. Lord, for those of us who have taken our relationship with You lightly, I ask, God, that You would convict us so that we would take it more seriously, more reverently, knowing that You are a holy God and that we are indeed guilty according to Your law. Jesus, thank You for taking my death sentence. Thank You for taking my place, for doing something that no one else could do for me. And the only way for that to be paid is if I died myself. But you took my place. And you took everyone else's place that believes that in faith you did that for them. And so God, I pray for anyone here who does not have a relationship with you that they would confess their sins, admit that under the law that they are guilty and accept that gracious, generous gift of Your blood for them that took their place so that they could have a fruitful, everlasting life in Your kingdom. In Jesus' name, Amen.